Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on the time that we have together this morning in your house on your day to sing the truths of those words in the song talking about ages over against the moments of time that we spend now. Lord, we ask that you give us the proper perspective, especially as we read in the portion of your word this morning about a little while and how we, the disciples would see you and how again a little while and they'd see you again after a period of time when they wouldn't. Lord, give us what we need this morning to understand your word, but specifically as far as that perspective. And that we take full advantage of the time we're in this room together this morning. That tomorrow and yesterday wouldn't crowd in on what we've got right now. And that we would see this time as a privilege around your feet as we, as students, learn from your word. Learn from your, your very heart. Lord, I ask that you bless those in this room and situations they find themselves in Lord that we'd be a blessing to one another as far as encouragement how we would build one another up in our common faith bless other churches as they gather similarly this morning thank you for those in this room as well as those watching over our live stream but Lord give us an eternal perspective And may the things said here, because they're your things, reverberate through eternity. We ask all these things in the precious but strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to see each of you this morning. And uh, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John. And I mentioned last week that it had been about two years since we started studying the book of John. This past week, I looked in my notes, and last week when that was said was precisely the two-year mark as far as the week is concerned. And if you're visiting with, with us this morning, of course, we're always glad to have guests. But uh, this is what we typically do. We study Scripture a verse at a time. Um, not just one verse each Sunday. Sometimes it's a short passage of verses. Sometimes it's longer. Sometimes our pace seems slow. Sometimes it seems quickly. But it's taken us about two years to get to the 16th chapter of John. And we take breaks in the summer. This past summer was uh, Jonah. The summer before that was Judges. And uh, usually we'll go the opposite testament when we take a break. But we found no better way to to hear the scriptures out and to understand them in their context. And for the past several weeks, we've been looking at what amounts to uh, the farewell discourse of Jesus. A lot of times the gospels are organized by Christ's extended messages. And from the 13th chapter of John, where we're looking at the upper room and him washing the disciples' feet, uh, all the way through chapter 17 is basically this goodbye message. Uh, Everything will change a lot right about the end of of this chapter, chapter 16 and chapter 17, where the whole chapter is basically in red, and we're listening to Jesus pray to His Father. Talk about an an intimate uh, 
conversation between God the Father and God the Son, and we get to watch in on that in chapter 17. But until verse 33, and we'll wrap that up next week on the 15th, and we'll have our communion service on the 22nd. We'll get with John 17 on the 29th. But for this morning, our text is John 16, starting in verse 16 and moving through verse 25. So let me read that to you uh, when I find it myself. I opened up to where we'll conclude this morning and overlooked where we'll get started. All right, John chapter 16, verse 16 through 24, we'll read and then we'll pray. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what is meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but you will see, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And for the privilege it is not just to study it alone, but to study it together. May the accountability that comes along with that serve your servants well. Lord, may you teach us as the master teacher. Make us good students. Take total jurisdiction over our mind and our heart, even our attitudes. Bring conviction where it's needed. Expose our sins where needed. And be glorified in doing so, as we're more like you and less like ourselves each and every day. Thank you. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, along with the setup there of where we're looking, chapter 16, toward the end of this farewell message, before a long prayer between Jesus and his Father, what he tells his disciples here. Sounds repetitive. It sounds a little bit wordy, even reading through it there. It almost looks like whoever was copying this once upon a time uh, got a few repeats in there. That's not the case. Uh, This is inspired scripture. This is John telling us, slow down and pay attention. And I want you to pay attention so much that I'm going to repeat this twice. 
altogether three times. And what we've got to do is unwind it and understand what is going on. Um, the dramatic here is probably at a height that's difficult for us to understand because we're so removed from these men. Not only has it been 2,000 years, not only is the culture a lot different, but we like to think of the disciples almost as people different than ourselves. They, they knew more than we know, and uh, they handled things better than we handled them. Uh, we should have learned by now in John's gospel. They didn't know much, and most of the time what they did know, they got wrong. And in this case, we do know a lot more than the disciples know because we're standing on one side of the cross, and at this point, they're standing on the other. We'll get to that in a minute. It, it makes a huge difference. So the phrase that we've got to understand, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. And this confused the disciples. That's clear. What is this that he says to us? And then they repeat it. And they add something to it that Jesus didn't say, but he'd said earlier in the passage. So that's a good thing. They're trying to connect the dots. They add, because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does this mean? We do not know what he's talking about. And then Jesus jumps in here. He knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said, and repeats it again. And trying to understand how that would work among a group of 12 men. It was 12 disciples to start with. Judas is gone. There's 11 in Jesus. Did he just sit there and let them talk about him in front of him while he was quiet for a while? That might be exactly how it happened. Maybe he's on ahead of them and they're in transition between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't tell us, but there's enough here for us to understand. And what we've got to do is figure out which of Jesus' going aways that he's talking to with his disciples. What, which one? Because we've got options. Disciples don't. They don't know any of this that's about to happen. When we look at this, uh, he could be talking about his ascension. They see him then, but then there'll be a time where he ascends into heaven, and then he comes back at the second coming. And it's a little harder to compare that long while, and we know how long that is because we're 2,000 years downstream from these guys who are hearing Jesus say a little while. And that's where it makes more sense to us that the little while he's talking about is three days between a death and a resurrection. That's likely, very likely, that that's exactly what's being said. Most of the scholarship agrees on this. That the little while is the short amount of time, three days, between his death and his resurrection. But I bring all this up because it will help us tremendously to understand that the words said here were a complete mystery to the men, again, who are standing on the other side of the cross, even though it's less than 24 hours away. It's hard for them to understand what he means by a little while. Any of you remember trying to figure out what it meant in the back seat of the car when you asked how long till we get there and you were told something that didn't make sense to you? Maybe not unlike that because there's no reference point for it, especially if it's a trip you haven't been on before and you're eight years old and you've never driven a car before. So you don't have much to, to work with. 
The best interpretation of this little while and then the second little while is the short time between what he's saying here and his death and then from his death to his post-resurrection appearance to these men. Even so, the disciples still have no means for making sense of a Messiah, that's who they believe him to be, who would die, rise from the dead, and then abandon his followers for a replacement that he'd been describing as the counselor. So again, try to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Since you've been a child, you've been taught that there's a Messiah promised. He'll sit on the throne of David. He'll bring us back to where we thought everything was best. Now, how does that wash with this going away and then coming back? That wouldn't make sense. And then they don't even have the specifics of a death and a burial and a resurrection in order to fill in those blanks and make it more specific. So we've got to bear with these disciples, actually, in trying to see how they see it before we can see it as it was written. Now, the justification for what Jesus had said earlier, remember last passage we were studying how he said there's a lot that you don't know that you can't bear right now? All that kind of comes into better focus the more we read because we're reading about stuff that they couldn't bear if they knew it. It wouldn't make sense to them. Now, just to take another time out and make sure that we can empathize with these men this has got to be the height of of the drama thus far the most intimate revealing gut-wrenching agonizing conversation he's had with these guys yet they've spent three years with him been through a lot together and things are coming into focus now that that he's going away how? We don't know. He's talked about dying and coming back. All this is slowly adding up. And what they don't know, though they may have a huge anxiety of the unknown ahead of them, within 24 hours he'll not be available to them all because he will be dead. Now, that's what we've been taught since we were kids. We know the Christmas story. We know the Easter story. We know these are the best stories there ever were. But for these guys, him being dead isn't quite like we see Jesus being dead and then alive again. And even if they could grasp this fact at the moment it was said right here, do you think they'd be able to concentrate or their mind would run wild ahead of them trying to figure out how he's going to be dead less than an hour or 24 hours from now? I mean, if, if somebody told you, you know, there's going to be a missing chair uh, by Thanksgiving. Hmm, okay. No, you're, you're consumed with that until it happens, right? Probably among those things that is just too much for them to bear at the moment. And then after that, they wouldn't even have access to the body to even confirm that it's not all a big bad dream. Now, one technical point here. Well, a couple. Just so if you like taking notes, this is to help us make sure we wring everything out of this that we can. That John includes a double repetition of the same words for a total of three little whiles and then again little whiles. 
has to be one of his literary devices to make sure we understand and pay attention here. What the contents of this is going to be massive as far as the, the themes and the conclusion of the book. A lot of that will come into focus next week. So we'll leave it for then. And then one more. There's actually two Greek words used in all three of those instances. If you look at verse 16 one more time. A little while and you will see me no longer. And a little while and you will see me. Those C's, S-E-E, we understand that as uh, seeing something with our eyeballs. That's two different words in the Greek. Our English gives us the same word to describe them, but they mean two different things. And the first one has more to do with observing. Recognizing I see something. I can see you right now. Now, if you were to leave and then come back, that would be different and maybe different the way this is. The second word is, is to appear. So it kind of describes what you saw before, but you're going to see it again when it makes another appearance. Why wouldn't they just use the same one? Don't know. This is John writing and it's inspired. But you probably have the argument here, knowing what we know of John, that um, he's being imaginative with his words. I don't think it'd be too far of a stretch to say that when you see me again, you may see me as you've never seen me before. That when you see me this second time, it's kind of like pushing in the key, the tumblers all falling in the right format, and being able to turn that key and unlock to yourself volumes of understanding that heretofore have not at all made sense. Think about this. They're going to see the resurrected Lord. Then all the questions basically make sense at that point. But not without a little period of little while that's very dark, very confusing, very painful, very miserable with sorrow and weeping. And Jesus is telling them this before it happens. So the big question among the disciples, and uh, here's where we'll, we'll kind of take a look from their perspective more so than next week and the week after when, when, when I th I'm, I'm clear that, G that John is trying to show us the heart of Jesus in chapter 17. He wants us to observe the disciples and their predicament here in 16. And the big question is this, if you want to write a question, this is what's confusing them so badly. If Jesus wishes to bring in the Messianic kingdom, if he's the Messiah, he's the one to sit on David's throne, he's the one to do all that we've heard of for so long, why is he leaving? And if he doesn't want to do all that stuff, why is he coming back? Neither one of these makes sense. And they've got to figure it out. Now the way in which these men wrestle with this and, and this is the new development in everything that John has wrote, written up until this point regarding the disciples and worth our notice. So far, every time Jesus is talking and the disciples are talking, Jesus is talking on a level like this, and the disciples are understanding on a level like this. If he's talking about spiritual food, they're talking about bread that they would chew up and swallow over and over and over again. And it seems that Many of the times when he'll say something to him, when they say it back to, to kind of get an understanding, it's all jumbled and, and, and 
misspoken as if they're more concerned with what they think and what's wrong about what they expected than what he's talking about anyway. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you know how to do something and that, that might not, you might not be the kind of guy that knows how to do everything. There are those people. But you're just trying to be helpful. I'm going to try to show you something. But the person on the other side is one of those people who knows how to do everything but doesn't know what you're trying to tell them. So as you're trying to tell them, they're filling in blanks. Each one is a wrong conclusion and the whole thing just breaks down and at the end of it, you've, you've cast your pearls and, and nothing's worked. So far, that's pretty much how it's been working with the disciples up till now. At this point, it's clear that they're finally listening. If you look at what they said in the second repetition of that, it's basically verbatim what Jesus said. In other words, they repeated back to him exactly what he said. And for extra credit, they grabbed something that he had not said then, but had said a few paragraphs earlier and connected the two. So what's going on here They quote Jesus' words precisely, including a few more that he'd said earlier, indicating that they were listening. And this hasn't always been the case. I was reading a book uh, last year. It was a short one. It was very helpful, but it was about thinking and how in our culture today we're not as good at thinking as we used to think, especially in uh, debating one another persuading one another, being open to learning different things. We're we're kind of sequestered off in our own little boxes of the way we think, and we don't really want to have much to do or interact with other types of thought these days. Uh, The open market of ideas isn't like it used to be. That's what the book is saying. And he used as an example uh, a wonderful way to dialogue with this uh, university that had a debate team that had some of the best there were and the rules for their debating one another went something like this one team makes an argument uninterrupted and then the other team has to repeat back that argument such that the other team says yes that is exactly what I said before they're able to give their counterpoint In other words, before you speak, you must listen. And it dramatically, can you imagine (laughs) if that's what we had witnessed over the last few months? Okay, let me make sure I'm hearing this correctly. Is that, that what you're saying? All right, well, I think a little different, and here's how. This is not exactly what the disciples are doing. But what we're able to see here is that they do value what Jesus is saying as he is saying it which he hadn't before and not only that they confess that they don't understand what Jesus is talking about where before maybe they hadn't before it was it was similar but it was different it was how can he be saying this or this doesn't match what we've heard before this is this is wrong For the first time in chapter 16 of John's gospel, out loud, the disciples actually admit that they know that they don't know something. That may be the actual blast off for your spiritual life when you're ready to admit 
that there's things spiritually that you know you don't know. That's the point where he's ready to ask in the Father's name. Not ask in your name for the stuff that you want, but the stuff that Jesus has yet to reveal to you. Now verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Another one of these situations where it looks like Jesus takes a turn. Now he's just following the arguments. They're now on board. And uh, let's explain 20 and then we'll look at 21. So Jesus is making it clear that his followers will have a difficult time and begins to paint the picture of the next few days. Though they haven't lived them yet, so they don't know in specifics how they'll play out. The way he describes it is that the world will celebrate Jesus' death while the disciples will weep and mourn the loss. And again, we have an idea about what this means, but they don't. They don't know how this is going to pan out. If, if, if they're talking amongst themselves, he, him dead, how's that going to happen? Are they just stone him? Uh, the authorities going to give him over to the Romans? Is it, certainly it's not like that. Will, will he succumb to the, to the beating? You know, a lot of people died at the Roman scourging. They don't know these details. We do. But would you agree that based on our experiences, time is relative? Time stamp, five minutes, ten minutes, ten days, ten years. Um, I think you all agree, the older you get, the faster it goes, right? Uh, there's like ten years between Christmases when you're, you know, the, my youngest's age. Um, there's way less than a year between Christmases at 42 for me. They just fly by. Jesus is speaking of a short time between his death and his resurrection. And during that short time, the world will rejoice and the disciples will weep. The little while is a short time of darkness that they've got to pass through. But with that in mind, the idea of time and, and, and relativity, that's what you should do when you, when you go eat lunch, wherever it is today, say, Pastor is talking about theory of relativity today. Um, let's say a little while at lunch with a friend. Does that feel like a little while? Let's say the same amount of time stuck in traffic on 40. Does that feel the same? What about the same amount of time with a kidney stone? I've had one of those. Longest ride in my life. I hope I never experience that again. Time dramatically slows down. What about the time, as Jesus is going to tell us here in a minute, uh, labor, birthing a child, bringing them into the world? Um, in fact, let's just read it. Jesus breaks, gives an illustration. Good teachers give good illustrations. This one is perfect. When a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, this was used by 
uh, Isaiah, Hosea, Micah, all through the Old Testament to describe salvation of the Messianic age. Jesus is using it to describe the, the difference in perspective between the little whiles. One is going to be awful. The other is going to be very joyful. Now, does the joy at the end after the labor make you forget altogether like you can't remember that pain and agony? My wife says no. <laughs> now, she's not the mother that likes to remind the children when they're bad as to how awful that labor was. And, you know, I've, I've heard people do that when they're aggravated with their children. You don't know what I had to do to bring you into this world. I can take you out and all that type of stuff. You remember it, but it is different. It was worth it. You wouldn't trade it. You wouldn't go back and do it any different. That's what's going on here. Jesus didn't mean that they wouldn't remember it, but that he would transform it, that the joy would actually come out of the sorrow. That's what he actually says here. For He'll bring it through there. The illustration of childbirth is then applied to their situation in verse 22. So you have his statement in 20, his illustration in 21, and then the application in 22. So you also, that's his disciples, have sorrow now. Sorrow's actually begun. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. I don't think I'll ever be able to take the joy of our children away from my wife, reminding her of any aspect of the labor it took to bring them into the world. That's a ridiculous thought. But what difference will this make? We don't have to wait long. Jesus tells us, and again, this is future to them, but he'll tell them the result of the little bit of time of sorrow against the little bit of time before they see him and the difference where the sorrows turn to joy. Verse 23, here's something that they won't do anymore as a result. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. They'll be questionless. Again, think about your kids. Have ever a point to where they just quit asking questions? Hope not. There's too much for us to learn. But there's going to be a... In, in a sense, something about when they see Jesus again that's going to leave them questionless. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. And this has to do with the way in which they pray. They haven't been praying to Jesus because Jesus has been with them. But then they're going to pray to the Father and ask for things in his name when he's gone. Theologically, that's what's coming, and that's what they will do. So there's something they won't do. They won't ask questions as in need more knowledge to solve the mystery of his Messiahship. But they will be asking for sustenance in his absence. So the disciples up till now had asked lots of questions. Some of them were, we talked about it, dumb questions. Only reason why we can say they're dumb is because we're 2,000 years later with a full Bible looking at it and it doesn't make sense to us. We should know better. But when the day comes, he says, you won't ask me anything. Why won't they ask him anything? Because in one sense, get this, 
Seminary will be over the day they see the resurrected Christ looking at them. If you're a disciple and you're going through Jesus' seminary, he dies. And having told you that he would, but that he would come back, and then you see him after he's come back. Don't you think that's pretty much your final exam? You don't need to ask about that anymore. It's self-revealing. And with us, I think it's the same. Although our looking into his face will be on the other side of a different little while than these disciples. All falls into place there. The final enemy, which is death, is conquered before their eyes. He couldn't stay dead. Death had no claim on him like it had claim on anyone else who's a sinner. And then the interpreter, the Spirit, is going to guide them in his absence. So there's that information. They won't ask questions the same way. To ask here means ask a question rather than to request a favor. A lot of us want to get that mixed up. Lord, I need your help with this, that, and the other. Rather than, Jesus, I don't understand this. Will you tell me this, that, and the other? But what he says here is you will ask in Jesus' name and the Father will give in Jesus' name. And if you ever wondered why do we close our prayers so often with in Jesus' name, this is why. Jesus is saying that the events soon to take place will alter everything. They will not again return to the situation in which they were before. Why not? Because it's hard once you've passed through a dramatic excruciating experience to be the same afterward we've been talking up until now about there's stuff they just don't know well on the other side of this they're going to know all that stuff so there's no way to go back to where they were before they knew how many times have we talked about kids maybe this is the last one some of you say hopefully we'll stop talking about kids you know that something is is gained and at the same time may be lost as your children experience things Certain times in this fallen world, uh, innocence is lost after they've seen or heard something. They can't go back to the way they were before. What about the things that they wonder about that are, are amazing to them? I remember taking three of them to uh, the city park in Burlington, having a ball on those goofy little rides there. We went back the next year. I didn't see what I saw the first year as far as the wonderment and the ability. All the Christmases are different. Christmases with teenagers are nowhere near as fun as Christmases with toddlers and tiny children. What changes? We know things. He's saying everything will change here. And the truth of this is, we're still on this side of, of some little while. We have this huge transition known as from this world to the next. Uh, we're all awaiting unless he comes before that. What will it be like on the other side of these things for us? This is a great place to ask what's in this for me. This is not one of those sermons that has three points you can write down. This is kind of a journey and a conclusion at the end of it. Another pointless message. How many or how much or how would it go 
Or what would you expect to just think your way through the disciples' little while? What did they do with their little while? After Jesus has been killed and he's been taken down off the cross and he's been sealed in a tomb and they haven't had any contact with him or ability to see the body and they've got to wait till the morning of the third day what'd they do how'd they feel what'd they think um, we've got a little bit of clues they were all together when Mary came to find them and tell them that hey the body's gone or I've seen the Lord and some of them run back we know the Easter story but what about Saturday do you think they ever sat together with their head in their hands and could gather themselves enough to talk and just tell each other how they felt do you suppose that any of them said the words you've probably heard a few times in your life I didn't expect it to turn out like this. Now remember, they, they, don't know what, they don't know the Easter story yet. They know Christmas, but not Easter. And that's a question you have to reach a certain age to ever ask. We don't ask that as children. And there are some that tragedy affects their lives sooner than later. But for the most of us, that question comes... After childhood and adolescence and after we've taken a shot at all the things we hoped we could do or be and uh, at some point we just look at hopefully someone who loves us enough to know what we mean when we say it. I didn't expect it to turn out like this. Some of this is hard. Some of this hurts. I didn't expect to have this. To live with this. Or to die with this. Or a relationship that fell all apart. Or someone you trusted proved themselves untrustworthy. But I don't think that life is any different in some regards for disciples who spent three years in Jesus' presence than those who, uh, during the church age, or those before. I don't know that Abraham ever asked Sarah, you know, I didn't expect it to turn out like this. Thought we'd have some kids by now. Or John alone on Patmos. I didn't expect to be the only one left. I think that's pretty much all of us in a fallen world and it's all because of a tree in the garden that was taken from. Sin ruined what God made. It's not perfect anymore and that's why He came to fix it all. So Looking at life through a glass darkly as it is, some of you might want to say, well, I, I, get, I get this, and I get the disciples' sorrow for a little while. But my sorrow's been for a long while. And I've been in ministry long enough to hear people say, I'm about tired. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm done with this. It hurts too bad. And good Christian people have big questions. And the real good Christians say like the disciples, I don't know what he means by this. I don't know what's good out of here. I don't know the lesson. 
But the problem with it is, is we're standing on the other side of something we don't know even bigger than that. Birth hadn't happened. It's still travail and contractions. Maybe it's transition, you know, the big contraction before it's over. And I don't think you need to have cancer or Alzheimer's or ALS or Parkinson's or any of these other awful things that are part of this world broken as it is that doesn't work like it's supposed to to realize that that stuff's not necessary to realize shouldn't be that when the Christian leaves this world he'll trade that sorrow of a little while remember little whiles are relative right over against other things that are not little and we'll trade that little while of sorrow for unspeakable joy. That none of us know anything about other than it's the best thing and we probably couldn't handle it now if we knew about it. And the few who did, like Paul was told not to talk about it. So it's a surprise that you have to trust your Lord for. And Jesus says here, this is important, joy that no one can take away from you. So maybe we can identify with these disciples here. What are we supposed to do? He's gone now. Was it us? Did we do something wrong? What do we do as Christians here now with with real struggles and real pain? How am I supposed to pray? How am I supposed to grow? I'm such and such years old now, and I still don't know how to pray, and I still have more things that I'm bothered by spiritually than I'm proud of. How am I supposed to do anything as far as telling others about this? It's so difficult to even tell a stranger what's so important to me. How do I stop sinning? Ask him. That's what he said, wasn't it? Until now you've asked nothing in my name. That was for the disciples. Asking you will receive that your joy may be full. So Jesus says to them, speaking future, they were to pray in order that their joy may be complete. You could say that backwards. Sometimes it's stronger that way. Your joy cannot be made complete without praying for it. Right? This is where the faith comes in. Keep reading the story. You're going to find these same guys huddled in a room praying. And the place is going to be shaking and a wind's going to blow. Then they're going to turn the world upside down. But sometimes you get that quiet where you're just supposed to be still and know he's him. There's more to come. But how do we get through this? By asking in the spirit that your joy which now looks like sorrow may be full we're going to sing a song in a moment more about Jesus the disciples in this passage are learning a lot more about Jesus we need to learn a lot more about Jesus we'll learn more about Jesus through our pain than we ever will through our joy that's just the way it works Some of the better things that we'll ever know about him are going to come through something that hurts very badly. When we see his face, everything will change. But until then, we're learning, 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 praying, praying, praying. 
I'll close with a benediction after the hymn. And let me pray before we sing. Father in heaven, we thank you for letting us look in on the agony of your disciples who would be so confused and so broken, so ashamed of their selves after having said things that it would amount to a total denial of even knowing who you were. Lord, these would be broken men. Had they known what they were headed into, they, they may n- never have survived. Lord, let us know that the same could be true of us, that compared to glory, this world is, is our death. To glory, how can we compare that life with, with this, but to describe it as the valley of the shadow of death? Lord, through our goodbyes, even the long drawn out little by little goodbye so many of us have been through or are going through or will go through. Lord, let us see the light of your face. If only to imagine what it was like for these disciples to look at you alive after you've been dead. Hold us tight. May we make you proud. May you find us useful. And we ask all this in your gracious name. Amen.